Now on Documentary on News Talk, a documentary that explores how people with a criminal record build new lives through education, community engagement and employment. Produced by Sinead McCann and Alan Meany, in collaboration with The Bridge Project. This is Trigger for Change. I was sort of the new kid on the road. You know, so I, I always make jokes about it. You know, I was a redhead with a lazy eye and big ears. So, yeah, I used to get bullied a little bit, you know, as a kid. This is Jason. How did he go from this little child who was bullied to a life of drug use, crime and imprisonment? And how did he survive? My ma, she'd send me to the shop three times a day. I used to always have to pick which shop I'd go to just to avoid these lads. And uh, one day I, I ended up picking a, a shop over in Kushla and a couple of lads that I would try normally to avoid, I ended up bumping into them and I ended up getting into an argument, into a fight with them. And uh, one of the fellas that I was fighting, you know, I ended up getting the better of them. And, but within that day, you know, I became friends with those people who was originally who started off bullying me. And so um, I actually liked that. I liked that. Uh, I didn't like um, the fight. What I mean is, I liked that I was accepted. I'm amongst these now, and I'm not being the, the victim anymore. This is mostly Jason's story, but we'll hear from a few other people, like Paul. He has gone through similar experiences. He was a drug user and spent time in prison. When he got out of prison, he tried to open up his own business. I was ready to go. I went to get a call for insurance, but then I had to tick the box that I have a criminal conviction. When I ticked the box, I was shut down. They wouldn't give me a policy for the social enterprise. Siobhan Cafferty has worked in the Irish Prison and Probation Service for many years and is now the Social Enterprise Project Manager. In society, it's not just an Irish problem, in any society, Offenders are this group that are over there. However, all of those offenders come from a family and a community. And we, we have to start to acknowledge that. And if we want our family systems to work, our community systems to work, those individuals are part of our community too. You know, if you want things to change, you have to change how you do things. We'll hear about the Bridge Project in Dublin as well, who help men on release from prison with a range of supports. Maeve Hartnett is the executive manager. Myself and my team would do various trips into prison services. Sometimes I suppose people can be just left out on a Friday evening and there's nothing's been set up for them. And I suppose I, my opinion on that would be that you're kind of almost setting up someone to fail. Whereas if they come out with the proper supports, then at least they're given the opportunity to make, to make the right decisions this time around. But let's start with Jason. He has four sisters and one brother. He grew up in a disadvantaged part of Tala in Dublin in the 1980s. And violence was never far from his young life. You know, there would have been a, a lot of violence, you know, in my own home growing up. But my, my life was a bit, uh, my, the, the family dynamic was a little bit chaotic. You know, Ma would have been, you know, uh, I don't know, I don't even like saying it, but she would have been like, a, you know, in addiction herself. She would have been an alcoholic. She wouldn't have left the house without taking our, um, our tablets. Um, she'd be on a lot of uh, Valium back in them days, you know. But in the family, my dad would have been, my dad would have been a drinker as well. Now, he was a walker, you know, my dad grafted. So really, to avoid one madness, I went into another at a very young age. Jason's mother had her own addiction issues and it caused tension and fights in the family home. After some time, she moved out and his dad took on the responsibility of rearing the family. 
it was only after a while that um that things came to a light, let's say, and then my dad ended up taking charge. You know, my dad ended up, uh, you know, they were, my man and dad would have been classed split up back in those days, you know, so my dad ended up getting custody, basically. You know, he ended up um, raiding us full time. But I think by the time my dad took over, I was at the age of, I was gone. I'd already found, you know, my escapes outside that. And I liked them, as I said, as a young age, there was a little bit of control there. So, you know, my dad done an amazing job now, you know, he tried his, his best with me, like, you know, and my sisters all, you know, my sisters turned out well, you know, they all have their own kids, you know, they had their kids at an early age. Like, my ma, you know, obviously we loved my ma as well, you know, but there would have been a lot of blame, you know, as I was growing up, you know, saying it's because of that, it's because of this, because of you, you know, that, you know, the way that I turned out, but I just learned to understand that. You know, my ma had un- had her own, like my ma had a, you know, tough life, you know, growing up as well. And she tried to do the best she could with us. But unfortunately, uh, because of the circumstances, you know, she probably wasn't able to give what, you know, what, what, what you'd expect. A taste for alcohol arrived at a very young age. Yeah, there would have been a lot of addiction in the house at that age. And that's where I got my first taste for alcohol. It was a kind of scumpy jack when my dad was asleep on the chair. I ended up robbing one of his cans. And... Uh, yeah, so that sort of led me down the road of what alcohol can do for me and how I feel, you know, with that. He hung around with his gang of friends drinking. This led him to committing petty crimes. At 13, he moved on to a gang of older lads. And by the age of 14, he had left school, not being able to read or write. He went undiagnosed with dyslexia until he was in his 40s. School wasn't really a big part of my life. I was actually in school up to the age of 14. I wasn't able to register even what the teacher was saying to me. Yeah, so it was a bit chaotic, you know, so I was never really present in school. From a young age, I didn't have much control of anything. That, whether it be inside the house or outside the house, it was like, you know, I'm trying to survive, you know, on each side. You know, we'd be going out, robbing back gardens and sheds, shoplifting. You know, uh, and, and alcohol then was a big thing as well, because alcohol was involved in nearly everything that we were doing. And then from there... That was, that was at a very young age. I would have been taught in at that. And I, I started moving on from the old lads and started getting a new, you know, an older group of, of friends. And that's when I started uh, getting involved in more serious crime. I'm accepted into this gang as well. So that was a big thing as well, just to make sure you'd fit it in. And then I became uh, known to the guards. And once the guards started arresting me, you know, for these crimes, I was put into um, Trinity House. Trinity House was a secure unit for young offenders and Jason was placed there at the age of 15. When he turned 16, he was moved on to the medium security prison at St. Patrick's and after 12 months was released on probation. This was the start of a cycle of alcohol and drug use, crime and imprisonment for the next 23 years. My name is Siobhan Cafferty and I am currently the Social Enterprise Project Manager working with the Irish Prison and Probation Services. I'm not in any way, shape or form trying to diminish the harm and and the destruction that criminal lifestyle can bring to families, communities and individuals. However, all of those offenders come from a family and a community. And we, we have to start to acknowledge that. And if we want our family systems to work, our community systems to work, those individuals are part of our community too. And in many cases, and in my experience, people have major difficulties in their childhood whether it was an early bereavement, 
one or both parents uh, being addicted to substances, um, homelessness, unfortunately, sexual abuse was, was fairly prevalent. And we have to start to see that, unfortunately, there are people in our prison system who are there because they, they, they fell through the gaps as a child. And we have to start to hold our hands up to that. We have to say that sometimes when people don't fit in, and they mightn't fit in because they have a learning disability or they're dyslexic or they're ADHD or they've had a bereavement and they're acting out in class. But that's the alarm bells that go off at that point where we should be saying, intervene, 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 not exclude. So unfortunately, I'm dealing with the tail end of a system when people have been failed on a number of different occasions. And we have to try and do everything that we can, I suppose, in a way to to allow them to come back into society and to change once and for all. I think because I grew up around the violence and that, that chaotic lifestyle, I was able to adapt in prison. You know, because I knew it from a young age growing up to the, the, the family house to the outside and it became the norm to me. Drug use, crime and time spent in prison became a routine for Jason. For him, prison was a haven from the chaos of his life. He used alcohol and drugs to put up a front, to numb his emotions and to deal with his past. I could never show the real me because I couldn't. I'd be attacked if I did. So I, I always had to put up this front and it led me to all those years in prison. Before he was 18 years old, Jason was in and out of detention for young offenders for many years. When he turned 18, he received two consecutive five-year sentences for robbery. He served some of this time in Mountjoy Prison in Dublin, and it was there he began to use heroin. The second five-year sentence, and that's when I was introduced to heroin. Although I'd I done, done it once, I think, you know, when I, when I was out, but I didn't really like it. I didn't like it at all, actually, because I just got sick. And, you know, alcohol would have been my main, uh, my, my choice of drug use would have been just alcohol. But when I, was, when I was in prison the second time around for the second five-year sentence, it was like everybody, all my social group was nearly smoking heroin. So, you know, and believe it or not, that wasn't the main reason why I, why I started smoking. The main reason why was because I just wanted to um, just start taking, you know, there was not much to take. There was no alcohol inside, but yet there's all this heroin. Like, So I gave her a go and, and uh, as I said, I didn't really like it again, you know, because uh, the same story, just puking everywhere and, you know, couldn't sleep or anything. So heroin was the new alcohol, you know, that was able to give me the, the, the ability to carry on, you know, the way I've been carrying on. So it numbed me on thoughts, you know, because when you're in prison, you have to nearly uh, suppress all your emotions and feelings because you don't want to come across as weak and vulnerable. Thinking heroin was only something he would do in prison and that he would leave behind when he got out, he discovered it was very difficult to give up. And I remember all my friends that would have been inside. They used to say, Jay, you want to snap out of that? He says, when you get out of here, you're going to be strung out to bits. And I used to always think, no, this is just a prison thing. I'll leave her at the gate. Well, I found out that it wasn't that easy to stop. The addiction was in me from a young age and I didn't even know it until uh, I uh, progressed onto the heavier stuff, onto heroin. Paul is another man from Tala in Dublin. He also experienced personal challenges within the prison system as a drug user. Just going in and the whole 
different process. I was thinking, oh, they'll give me methadone. They will like take care of me because I'm a drug addict. It wasn't like that. They send you up to a hospital like department and they allow you to, to withdraw from your heroin. And I was up there, there was a, it was a psychiatric ward. People were like shouting and screaming and banging doors and there's all medication being given out. And I've been given medication to help me withdrawals. You know, it's the only reason why I'm up there. And I remember sitting at the window and I remember overlooking the field, but a train ran through the field, you know. And I used to sit there and watch that train go by every few hours and just processing everything like in that cell. The reality of everything hadn't sunk in, but just the hopelessness of where I was and no ability to change it, not knowing what would happen. Released after serving a second five-year sentence, Jason met up with old friends and was introduced to crack cocaine. Everything else goes out the window. You don't bother with alcohol, you don't bother with the heroin. All your main focus is, is crack, crack, crack. And I went off and committed serious offences for that. It was during this period of crack cocaine use in his 20s that Jason was sentenced to 13 years for armed robbery. You know, I got through it. But after that, I, was, I, I could nearly pinpoint exactly where this moment started, you know, where I started getting really, really... Um, I used to isolate myself a lot. I'd get very self-conscious, you know, about myself. I'd get paranoid. You know, I wasn't able to uh, function the way I normally would. Yeah, no, you'd be in solitary confinement. No, you would be allowed out with, with a certain amount of numbers. You know, but um, you're basically locked up 23 hours a day. You're only out for that one hour. You know, I actually hated prison, you know, as I went through my mid-years, like, you know, into my twenties, I started to see, like, this isn't normal, but I just, I wasn't able to come out of it. And, um, yeah, but it was easier than living in, in a society, let's say, in the community, because um, I didn't have any education. I grew up in prison, I've never went to school. I've matured, you know, from a very young age in prison, so it was imprinted in me, you know, this particular routine. You know, everything is structured for you. Your breakfast, your dinner, your tea, bed. The daily prison routine, although monotonous, gave structure to his life inside prison. A structure his life didn't have outside. Eight o'clock in the morning, go for your breakfast. Ten o'clock, go to the yard. Twelve o'clock, back in the cell. Two o'clock, back to the yard, back in the cell. Four o'clock. You know, that's it. Five o'clock down to the wreck. Watch a bit of telly till half seven, back to your room. That was it for two decades. The common issues faced by people when they leave prison include homelessness, addiction, unemployment and poverty. This is where community-based organisations like The Bridge Project provide people with much-needed support. Maeve Hartnett um, and I'm the executive manager of The Bridge Project on Francis Street. We're a place of second chances, second opportunities. Um, you know, all of our clients have gone through the criminal justice system, so they've been convicted of a crime. They've served their time. And our side then is the rehabilitation and offering them an alternative to criminality. So whether that's they've decided to go back into training and education, upskill or just take on meaningful employment for the first time. After serving a 13 year prison sentence, Jason was released and within two weeks he was back in custody. He felt defeated and unable to cope with normal life. You know, because you'd be relishing it, you'd be thinking about it, and it's beautiful. But the reality of it is, when you step outside that gate, wallop, you know, the reality hits you. It says, okay, this, this is not as easy as I thought. I dream of, of living that life and going out and walking, and I want a relationship, I want a girlfriend. I did have them in the times that I was out, but I wasn't able to maintain it. 
because of the, the of all these issues that were going on with me, or you would project them onto the family home. So if I'm uneasy myself, everything else around me is just gonna be uneasy. It's just gonna fall apart. So I, I wasn't able to cope or manage in a relationship in, in Athens, other than the structure of prison. My poor dad, at the end of that 13 year sentence, my dad, at the age of 25, had to bring me to sign on the labour. You know, I didn't know how to sign on the labour. If that woman challenges, if she gives me a form to fill out, I can't write as it is. I don't understand the questions. And then I can get frustrated. So sometimes it's easier to go back to what you know than face all these, these challenges, you know, because it's, it, it just reinforces in you, you know, that label that I'm never going to achieve that. I can't even sign on the label. My dad's with me. I'm 25, so I can't fill out a metal card. I can't bank account. Jeez, don't even go there. During those two weeks when he was out of prison, he began to engage with the bridge projects. This was an important moment for him, but he wasn't ready to fully participate in the services. Maeve Harshnit. What we normally try and do is, depending on the client, sometimes we actually collect them at the prison gate and they're brought to whatever accommodation we've lined up or they're brought here. They're definitely given an appointment within the first day of coming out, simply so they find out where the place is. They know when, if they're, you know, if they're having difficulty, at least they know how to find us um, and know where we are. We would do a needs analysis with each client when they come in um, and do an education assessment and essentially see where they are and decide, well, what's the best path for this person? We try and put people on programs that have a start time and a finish time and things, and it just gives people routine. Though Jason enjoyed his time at the Bridge Project, he wasn't able to handle the challenges of life outside prison. So I end up going into the Bridge, you know, the following morning, and I just sort of lost it. When I left the Bridge at one o'clock, I got onto the Lewis, and I went up and I ended up um, doing an armed robbery. I'm done, I'm done, I'm going back. And then it was only when I was back in prison, you know, when I was lying down, and this is when things started to come into effect of change. Like, you know, I was saying, that that place is actually a good place. You know, they were actually nice people. Like, I actually didn't mind. It was the first time in my life that I've ever been involved with that and, 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 you know, that I actually liked. The Bridge Project is available to support people leaving prison. Siobhan Cafferty from the Irish Prison and Probation Service. Sometimes what can happen in systems like the criminal justice system is once you move from prison to probation or prison just to the community you can it's like falling off a cliff you know you go from high level of support within an enclosed environment to nothing um and that makes people very vulnerable when i came out of, of the prison the 
come back into social centres. I couldn't go into a, a shopping centre without feeling social anxiety, feeling panic and having to walk outside to get breath because I wasn't used to being around so many people at one time. I couldn't sit in a housing setting with too many people in a room because I'd get social anxiety. I wouldn't be able to sit too long around people because that wasn't something I had been experiencing for such a long time. So when then I went into the college, I in the classroom and then being around so many people, just being coming out of prison, I wasn't prepared for the level of challenge I was going to face in the college. So I remained in the college for about three months and then I dropped out. I couldn't keep going. Jason's father died while he was back in prison. He was consumed by grief and depression. Previously, he knew that he couldn't go through with taking his own life as it would have broken his father's heart. But circumstances changed. And I was walking around the yard the next day, but I knew I will do it. I will do it because I've no, I've no, I've no drive left. You know, I can't, I can't continue in this. That the cripple I was outside, I am now in, and I, I know you feel everyone can see this. You know, I'm projecting all my thoughts onto other people, and I'm doing all they're thinking. Couldn't concentrate, couldn't focus. I'm watching everyone around me. I'm not even able to register a conversation because I'm that manic in my own head. Where do you go from that? You know, so uh, I wasn't far off. I had thoughts myself at that stage of just ending it. You know, I nearly came close to it. And I remember looking up at the sky and I just said, Dad, help me with this one. That was the most genuine time in my life that I actually asked for help. Because being honest, I didn't really like God. You know, because of the way I grew up, I was always, you know, why are you letting this happen? You know, I despised them, if I'm being honest. That day, yeah. Wholeheartedly, I just looked up and said, Dad, help me with this one. For Paul, it was a different experience. He went to Tiglin, a residential treatment centre in County Wicklow. He found the religious and spiritual aspect to the treatment there helped him in his recovery. I woke up that morning, heard guys praying and singing, thought I was in a cult. You know, all of that mentality came, but I stayed. Guys looked after me terribly well, and I couldn't understand the level of compassion and love and, and, and kindness that they showed me. Um, I made a decision to throw my heart to God and I prayed from the heart on my knees in, in that sitting room one morning and when I began to pray and I made a decision in my heart I was willing to let go of the drugs, let go of the violence, let go of the crime and the life I'd been living and something happened where I felt peace come, I felt um, all of the hurt and the pain come, I, I was crying, I was real emotional and the next day then it was like I had a peace that I never felt before. Having a discharge plan in place and a link with a community-based organisation like The Bridge Project is crucial for people so they can get support with accessing essential services. Myself and my team would do various trips into prison services. Sometimes I suppose people can be just left out on a Friday evening and there's nothing's been set up for them. And I suppose I, my opinion on that would be that you're kind of almost setting up someone to fail. Whereas if they come out with the proper supports, then at least they're given the opportunity to make to make the right decisions this time around. Um, so what we try and do is plan people's discharge so that they've got accommodation, they've got payment, um, and that they know they can come here and seek all the various supports that we have to offer. Accommodation is a massive thing at the moment. Um, they can't go home to they can't go to a family home for whatever reason, or some of them do go to the family home, and that can be difficult because they haven't been there for so long and life has gone on without them and it falls apart within a couple of weeks and they end up homeless and then without accommodation it's very difficult to get any sort of a social welfare payment it's very difficult to get a job you know it's it's a bit of a vicious circle. The suicidal thoughts Jason had while in prison this time around 
led him to a major turning point in his life. At a bail hearing in the district court, he received a four-year suspended sentence and a reprimand of €750. His sister Barbara visited him. The morning I went to court, I think it was it was a week after the actual offence that I was in for. You know, he would ask me the, what memory I had of that day. Not much. I, it was just a haze, you know, because I, I, I wasn't in a good place anyway. You know, this was 2017, you know, so my mind wasn't really, you know, he would ask me to scan the room and what was it like. You know, I couldn't even picture it. I couldn't tell you, to be honest. I went up there to the court. I applied for the bail. Not thinking I was going to get it because normally you'd, you'd have to get the refusal to go to the high court. So I, I got remanded. I can't even remember what was mentioned in the court. I just remember walking down the stairs, back down to the tunnels. It's in the courthouse. And uh, waiting to go back to the Clover Hill Prison. Uh, and there was a solicitor followed me down the stairs and he says, Jason, we'll have to get in bail. He says, we'll have to get in 750 euro. I was shocked because I actually didn't believe him because I don't think I've ever got bail in the district court before. Yeah, I was, I was delighted. I remember going back and I think it was two days later, Barbara came up to visit me in Clover Hill. And I went down and I had this smile on my face. And I says, Barbara, I says, I'm only getting 750 euro bail. And Barbara just looked at me and says, I know, I know. But she says, we're not bailing you out. And I just looked at her and I says, Barbara, it's 750 euro. I said, Jay, I'm not bailing you out. The family don't want you out. All the girls and my brother don't want you out. My heart just sank. I think I think I near, you know, I was just looked at it and it's barely winding me up. You know, I can't describe the feeling, but it's like a, a, an emptiness. It's like it's like uh, my last hope is gone. Because I knew in my mind I was done. I knew it. And I remember looking at Barbara because I knew something was had to change, you know, in me, and I want her to know this, but they've heard everything for 20 years. And she must have seen something with me because uh, she turned around and said, I tell you what, if you get a bit of treatment sorted out yourself, put a bit of weight on you, I might bail you out. I suppose a moment where we also have to remember that offenders aren't an homogenous group, you know, and that's unfortunately how society generally tends to see people is that offenders are offenders um, when actually female offenders offend differently. I suppose we need to differentiate. You know, there's older people who who generally tend to mature out of offending. There's members of the traveller community who, you know, sometimes are overrepresented within the prison system. Um, so we need to see all of those different components of people within the system and make sure that we're addressing their needs as much as possible. And in order to be able to do that, you have to know what those needs are. And I have to say, in every case, and in all the individuals that I spoke to, every single one of them wanted to distance themselves from their past as much as possible. They took ownership, they took responsibility for the crimes and hurt that they had caused to their victims um, and to their family. And they really wanted to move beyond that for a whole host of different reasons. I don't want to come across as I'm trying to justify or minimise, you know, everything that I've done. You know, the, the past is the past. What's happened has happened. There's nothing I can do about that. But I have, you know, I've took responsibility for everything I've, I've done and I've been punished for everything that I've been done. Myself and a lot, a lot of people I grew up in that I know, you know, we might have done bad things, but we're not bad people. Jason's sister began to make inquiries about a recovery house in Enfield in County Mead. He signed up to a full recovery programme when he was placed there. From Enfield, he went on to engage fully with the services of the Bridge Project. That was the 7th of June. 2017, you know, that was my last time using. So I went up to Enfield on serious um, methadone, 
levels. I think I was on 80 mils of methadone. And by the time I went to Enfield, I was down to 60. Now, I've been on methadone for 15 years. And the fear of coming off that, what way would it be? Because I was never good sober anyway. I found as time went on, it was like I got weaker in myself. I started to become isolated. After three months at Enfield, this time something was different. And he took part in a drug treatment programme and went off methadone and all of the other drugs he was taking. It was actually a lovely place. Just, just like just big fields, you know, beside it. It's, I don't know, it's, it's the environment. It's, it's um, very calm, you know, there's something calm about it. And I think that's what probably helped me get through the whole stage of, of my recovery down there. So the sickness wasn't the issue. It was the fear of me was the issue. Going into society, you know, back out to, to, to all those things that would have normally put me back in prison or feelings and emotions of myself that would have had me using. I have to face all these things. What made it a bit easier for me was I knew I had to do this. So coming off all the methadone and all, everything else that I was on, you know, wasn't as painful as what it normally would because I was choosing to do this. So it made it a little bit easier. Jason engaged in group therapy at Enfield and slowly began to speak about his life, his experiences and the challenges he had faced. You know, because you have a lot of people and I would have been wondering that I'll just sit back and not say a word, but have all this going on. So you learn to find your voice. And then you have an intense uh, group therapy where you walk on these under all these issues. You know, so you start facing them, start confronting them. You know, and then you say, right, well, that's the reason why in this. And then there's counselling. And then there's a recovery programme that I'm in, a sponsor. Some three months up there, and I got support from the Bridge Project. They used to come up and visit me, you know, up there as well. From the Bridge Project, I went to a day program and a recovery house, just as extra support while I complete my day program. When I left Enfield, it wasn't easy. I was stone sober for the first time in my life. I've spent over 20 years in prisons, and that's not even including the young offenders, you know, before that. This is what I'm in fear of all my life. Now I'm sober and I have to go through it. I, 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 you know, I wasn't able to talk to people. I, I'd get I'd get messed up getting on a bus. It was like everything I noticed how people say this, they move so fast because there's so much going on in my mind as well. You know, so I'm trying to be able to, I'm, I'm trying to slow that down, but it, you know, it wasn't easy. If it wasn't for the support that I had, like after I left Enfield, I had a day program, I had the bridge project, I had a recovery house. So I had, and it was it was run by by um, people that had similar experiences that have come through the other end. So I think that was the good thing because they could understand, they could sit down and say, okay, it's tough. I know it's tough at the minute. I was used to a certain structure. So 24 hours is a long day for me with nothing in me and not knowing what the hell I'm gonna do. I'm just following this path, this care plan that was put in place for me. And that's all I'm following. I've done a lot in, in the, those three years. And once I was able to channel, that energy, that, that negative energy that I crippled myself with. I learned how to flip that around and use that same drive that I'd use normally just to cripple myself into something positive. Through group and personal therapy, mentorship and witnessing the success of other people in recovery, Jason began to leave his old ways behind and start a new life. So I have a lot of people in my corner today that has helped and enabled me to do what I do today. And I'm still calling them. You know, uh, my, my life of 
of, uh, of addiction and madness doesn't just go away. You know, it's not a switch you can switch off, but you learn to understand it, accept it, cope, you know, rather than the old ways, you know. Like, it doesn't go away, but, oh my God, I wouldn't give a diver back. Hmm. Now, I am the man with the house, the employment, the relationship. Maeve Hartnett from The Bridge Project explains the importance of a place to call home. It's normally nothing extraordinary and it's nothing more than you and I would would ask from life. They're looking for, you know, somewhere they can call their home, you know, close the door behind them. They're looking for something that they can do with their time, something meaningful. Um, and they're looking for like somewhere where they can go with their families and have peace and not be constantly looking over their shoulder. With the support of his family and the Bridge Project, Jason has worked hard on his personal growth, education and employment. He has completed studies in addiction, personal training and development and has received a diploma in community drug and alcohol work. We're often looking for employers to take a chance or a risk on our lads, but like we need to be also taking that risk on them. I think one of the proudest things that we've managed to accomplish in my time here is the setting up of our peer support group, um, which Jason is part of. He facilitates it. You know, I think sometimes the guys aren't, they don't hear it when it comes from someone who hasn't been there. And I can understand that. So having a peer take that role has just been, it has definitely been better than I expected. It has worked so well. That's been a really successful program. Um, and, you know, it's been wonderful that we've been able to, to take someone like Jason on. The peer support group would mainly focus on day-to-day challenges. You have people that are in recovery, you know, that have been in and out of prison all their lives and are looking for a different way. But how do they do that? You know, they, uh, they, we, we work on self-esteem, self-worth. You know, what are, uh, what are the challenges in everyday life? You know, look, look for um, problem solving, you know, than, than going back to, you know, the old ways we try to... Learn new ways. So they see me, it's that law of attraction, you know. I want what he has and I'm here to help them get that. Jason has learned how to be vulnerable in a positive way and tries to be a role model for the men he works with. You would not walk around the prison yard and say to one of the lads, I feel a bit vulnerable today. Because you'd be looked at as gone off the head. See, today, when those boys hear me saying this, you know, I'm a bit stressed out, you know, I'm a bit worried. You know, whatever it may be, what you, the person you see sitting here today, that's the one face I use today. Not the 15 different faces I had grown up. When people leave prison, the task of gaining employment with a criminal record can be overwhelming. Sometimes they feel like they might not be ready for employment or that an employer would not employ them because of their criminal past. A lot of my work is at the strategic level. And for quite a long time, the criminal justice sector almost were criticised because they weren't moving people on and into employment. I have a saying, you know, if you want things to change, you have to change how you do things. And I suppose the role that I play is to challenge the system, but also to work in partnership with others. We need um, within the Department of Justice, Prison and Probation Services to look beyond our sector. We are not those who employ people. So therefore, in order for us to be able to assist the people that we work with and for to get into employment, we need to engage employers, for example in a meaningful way. The department have a new strategy out. It's called Working to Change. Unlike the previous one, which just focused primarily on social enterprise, this strategy 
tackles three areas of trying to support people to get into employment. So we're, there's three strategic areas are social enterprise. We're building on what we've done before, um, general employment. And then the last one, which is a completely new area really, is around entrepreneurship. So, I mean, effectively, they are one of three ways that someone with a criminal conviction can enter the, enter the labour market. When someone comes out of prison, they're meant to be fixed and sorted and then their time is done and their punishment, you know, whatever the, the judge has handed down to that person, they've done it, they've come out the other end. Um, and unfortunately, the label of offender does stick and it sticks. It's, I believe it's probably one of the hardest labels to break. And we often hear of the term ex-offender. And at what point does someone manage to break away from that? What do they have to do to lose the label of ex-offender? Paul encountered the harsh realities of being labelled an ex-offender while attempting to start a car valid business after his recovery from drug addiction. I had everything ready to go and I had Oracle were going to like sponsor us for a social enterprise. They were going to buy 300 valets off us and promote us through the whole service. And that was going to set us up in the, they were going to set us up in East Point Business Park. I was ready to go. I went to get a call for insurance, but then I had to tick the box that I have a criminal conviction. When I ticked the box, I was shut down. They wouldn't give me a policy for the social enterprise. So we went through this whole process. And in the end, I even got an, a broker who was a friend of mine to go and speak with the managers. And they wouldn't, they, they completely rejected the possibility of giving me a policy. So that shut me down in July 2019. I was left back at the start, had no job. And now I, I couldn't start a social enterprise. Jason recently got full-time employment helping to support others on release from prison to integrate back into their families and communities at Care After Prison. I'm a peer mentor trainer, a mentor supporter. But before that, I, I worked in CAP for, I think it was about a year and a half, as a support worker, key worker. Uh, what that is, is I provide care plans for individuals that would be you know, released from prison or even in the community, but are struggling to adapt back out into, into the community. So I would help put together a support plan. You know, they could be looking for addiction treatment, employment, training, education, housing, whatever it may be. I would help them support that and link them up with the services that can provide them supports. But today I'm a, I'm a peer mentor trainer and mentor supporter. So what that is, I train up men and women to become peer mentors to individuals that would be released from prison. The criteria to become a peer mentor is you'd have to be, obviously you'd have to have past experience of imprisonment. You would have to be two years post-release from prison, no upcoming charges, you know, it all have, that all had to be finished. You'd have to be clean from drug use, you know, because you're going to be a positive role model to this person. You're going to be an influence. You're going to share your own story with them and, you know, help them get through their own challenges, I suppose, uh, trying to adapt back outside. So that's what I do today. Uh, I oversee the whole worker relationship. You know, I would match the mentor up with the mentee, male or female. A majority of your mentors, um, they're all either key workers, support workers, um, they're all going through college. So they have a lot to give, you know, to, 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 the, to the persons that they'd be working with. Um, so I'm proud of that. I'm proud, I'm proud to be part of that. After Paul's disappointment with his car valid business, he has gone on to set up a ministry in Tala helping drug users and providing food for families in need in his community. So I've always been working with people in the community, people who have addiction needs and, and, and need to get support, they would ring me. So I'm known throughout the community as somebody who can help get access to treatment centres and I can call people that I know and I can refer people and get people sent off. 
like straight away. The people who are really desperate, I can get them in, in in short time. So I've been doing that work like off my own back, let's say. And then this year we looked at uh, setting up a ministry to kind of umbrella all of that work, so new creation ministries, uh, running groups here, um, some some Bible groups, but also addiction recovery groups we're going to start running there. And then um, looking at the uh, next stage of hopefully setting up a social enterprise. So people who become uh, abstinent and are looking to rebuild their lives, that we will start to feed them then into social enterprises. So we we're doing a food bank. We're looking after 20 families every week with food hampers. So we'd have like the baskets lined up on the table for tomorrow. Really, we'll pick up from the food bank today and or anything that can be frozen will go in the freezer and the fridges. Uh, chickpea curry, lovely and healthy. Some more like sausage rolls. There's a lot of um, corn, cottage pie, like so. All this stuff can be frozen. So these crates will be all lined out and then we'll make up 20 hampers tomorrow. We'll maybe do two runs where we'll go and we'll drop the food out to families. Jason and Paul have both worked hard to find employment after prison. But connecting people with a criminal record with employers can be difficult. Siobhan Cafferty from the Irish Prison and Probation Service. The reality of the situation is that someone has a criminal record. And until that potentially is expunged after seven years, and in many cases some of those those, uh, criminal records won't be expunged, you know, we have to be able to make sure that, that person is coming as prepared as possible. That's what we will do on, on the criminal justice sector side of things. And from the employer's side, we have to make sure that we're able to listen to their concerns, listen to their the, their fears and be there on an ongoing basis. And now it's time that we need to be able to say, look, we can provide you with potential solutions in terms of your skills gaps. Help us to do that. One of the big changes over the last few years is in public procurement, where you have to build in to the contract that you will take on a percentage of people who are marginalised from employment. So like the children's hospital was one. So that's built into public procurement contracts now, which is great. It opens stores and opportunities. And what normally happens there is guys go in, they do really well, the company are really impressed and they keep them on for the next job. Uh, we've been lucky, we've had just some people kind of approach us and want to work with us. Either they're struggling to get employees or they just want to be part of that and they it's part of their social responsibility and um, that they want to do this. We can work with you to ensure that the person is ready for employment because we will have done so much work with them in advance. We'll have tried and tested them. We only put people who are ready for employment forward. Paul can understand employers' concerns about hiring someone with a criminal conviction. I think you have to look at it from two like sides. Employers want to be able to trust their employees. You want to make sure that the person who's working for you is trained the customers right, that they're trustworthy, you know, that you can depend on them and things like that. So on that perspective, you can understand why employers might shy back from taking on somebody with a criminal conviction. On the other side, most people who come out from prison and who are genuinely seeking employment, genuinely looking to make changes, can be the best employees they can have. So you look at people who have criminal convictions and want to re-enter into, the, into society. They want to live honestly. They want to change from the way they've been living. They're more probably aware of the need to be honest, the need to be transparent. They're probably more hardworking to prove themselves 
like more supportive of the company and, and their values and they can be a real asset to a company. I think the likes of the Bridge Project, I'm not just promoting that, but the likes of other groups who actually take on guys at the first step and give them the training, give them the skills, give them the confidence to enter into the employment. Like guys who come through like the likes of these projects and then are going to the next step of, of employment. When they've gone through that kind of structure where they have learned skills and learned uh, how to really function again in society. These guys will really work hard. They want to get into life. They want to get a car on the road. They want to get a home. They want to build a family and they really want to, to make a difference where they haven't before. Jason's family have come to trust him as a reliable confidant and he had a proud moment with his sister Barbara. I walked her down the aisle. I, I, I stood for my father over in uh, Spain. She got married. I walked her down the aisle. So I started, was, although I was walking Barbara down the aisle, it was actually the first holiday I was ever on. First holiday, Sunset Beach in Spain. Yeah, the, the, the whole experience was beautiful. The whole lot of it. The first time I ever wore a suit in my life as well. And I have to say, it actually looked well on me. I have, I have the pictures at home, so. Boy, you had to walk Barbara up a big pathway by the beach. The sun is splitting. Because it was so hot over there, I actually thought we'd be sweating, you know, with the jacket and the shirt, but it wasn't. It was actually a lovely breeze. I could actually see the altar because it was made up and was out on the beach. Barbara just looked beautiful. She looked beautiful, you know, and I never would have imagined, you know, like never mind going on a holiday, but actually walking down the aisle. Barbara, you know, she supported me for over 20 years, you know, while I was inside. The fact that I got to walk her down the aisle was an honor. We had an amazing time, the whole family, and that's, that's the way we are today. We have family issues, the way everyone does. You know, but it's great that I'm able to be there to listen. Jason's relationship with his 19-year-old daughter has greatly improved. He was inside prison for most of her life, but he has built a connection to her since being released. We have an amazing relationship. She has her own room and all in my house. She comes stairs with me all the time. I'm so proud of, you know, of how she turned out. She's actually looking for my guidance and help. You know, I'm able to give her that now today. Trigger for Change was produced by Sinead McCann and Alan Meany in collaboration with The Bridge Project. Music by Eamon Bailey. Contributors were Maeve Hartnett, Siobhan Cafferty, Paul and Jason. Funded by the Arts Council Artist in the Community Scheme. Managed by Create.